tonight will be from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. That's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up gave himself for us that we might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Everyone deals with fear in their lives, and there are many different ways that they choose to deal with it. Some people simply bury their head in the sand and pretend like nothing is wrong. Others run away from whatever it is that they're afraid of. Still many other people are paralyzed by their fear to the extent that they're unable to make decisions. But what does the Bible say about fear? Tonight, we will look at how the Bible says we can deal with fear. First, we will look at some examples from the Bible of how we shouldn't deal with fear. And then second, we'll look at how the Bible says that we can deal with fear. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 25. First tonight, we will look at how to not deal with fear. The Bible makes it clear that if we're afraid and don't do anything with the word of God, we will be cast into hell. In the parable of the talents, a master leaves his three servants to make profit while he's away. When the master returns, he finds that one of his servants did not do as he asked. Notice with me in Matthew 25, verse 25, what the unfaithful servant said to his master. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. After this, we learn that the master casts his unfaithful servant into eternal darkness. The Israelites are probably one of the best examples in the Bible of how we shouldn't deal with fear. In the book of 1 Samuel, when the Israelites saw the giant Goliath, they became greatly afraid. 1 Samuel 17, verse 11. But why were the Israelites so afraid of this one man? One interesting article I read suggested that the Israelite armor of that time typically consisted of just their tunics or some sort of dried leather. What little metal the Israelites had access to would have been used to make their swords and other weapons. So naturally, when the Israelites saw a 10-foot man clad in metal armor with a spear and a shield, it's understandable why none of them would have been too eager to face him. Yet even then, the Israelites had no reason to be afraid of Goliath. God had delivered them from the Egyptians, from hunger and thirst, and from the people of Jericho. The Israelites also failed to trust God when they were about to enter the promised land. Despite the fact God had protected and provided for them, when they came to the promised land in Numbers 13, they chose not to enter because they were afraid of the people there. Ten of the spies who were sent to scout out the land described the people who lived in the promised land like this. There we saw giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Numbers 13, verse 33. 
Despite God providing for the Israelites time after time, they still didn't trust in him. In our lives, just because something looks scary doesn't mean that we should stop trusting God. If we do trust him, he will provide for us and save us, as we'll see later. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Moses is another great example of how we shouldn't deal with fear. In Exodus, in, sorry, in Exodus chapter 3 to 4, God is talking to Moses through a burning bush. God repeatedly tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, but Moses is afraid and does not trust in his speaking. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, God says to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Yet even after this promise, Moses still refuses to go, and God sends Aaron with Moses to speak for him. Moses had no reason to be afraid. God had promised him that he would be with Moses and even show Moses miracles that he could do in the presence of Pharaoh. However, because of Moses' fear, God sent Aaron with him to deliver the message to Pharaoh. So how do we deal with fear then? First, we should not let fear keep us from investing in the things of the Lord. Matthew 25, 25. The parable of the talents shows us what happens to those who don't invest in the Lord's work. If we do not invest in God's gifts, we can end up like the unfaithful servant who, because of his fear, ended up in eternal darkness. However, if we do invest in the things of the Lord, we will be rewarded and he will help us. Second, we should not let fear keep us from facing outspoken and powerful enemies of the Lord. That's 1 Samuel 17, verse 11. Just like the Israelites facing Goliath, everyone has or will face a seemingly insurmountable obstacle in their lives. However, whatever the problem may be, God has promised if you trust him, he will provide for you and help you with your struggles, just like he did for David. Third and finally, we should not let fear keep us from using our limited abilities to serve the Lord. Exodus chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Speaking in front of a crowd of people or having a Bible study with somebody can be hard. However, if we never study with or teach these people because of fear, how will they learn the gospel and be saved? By giving in to fear and waiting for a better time, you could be dooming someone to hell because of your own fear. Some people, like Pharaoh, will reject the word and harden their hearts, and that's a decision that they're free to make. What matters is that these people are given the knowledge to change their lives if they so choose. Let us never let fear keep us from sharing the gospel with others. In conclusion, God has promised that he will help us when we're afraid. The Bible says in Deuteronomy, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. God also tells us he has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. However, if we do not trust God, we can end up like the one-talent man who, because of his fear, was cast into hell. 
If we don't believe God will help us, how can we expect him to provide for us? God has promised that by trusting him, we will not have to worry about food and clothing. Matthew 6, verses 31 through 34. God also says we should only be afraid of that which can destroy the spirit. Matthew 10, verse 28. Let us always remember to trust God in our lives. Good afternoon. Today we will be discussing on the topic of why we need God. I want to start off from the beginning. When we are born into this world, we are completely dependent on our mothers. We need our parents or other providers to feed or clean up after ourselves. Even as little children, we can sense the need for parental care, parental care and protection. As we get older and gain confidence in our abilities, we, get, we begin to believe that we no longer need anyone or anything. We start to believe that we can do it all by ourselves and no longer need our training wheels. I'm sure we all know that little one that proclaims in a pouty voice right before getting ready for church that he could do it all by himself. And it comes out in neon green socks and neon green shoes and bright purple shirt and he thinks he did something. He thinks he accomplished that morning. But once we reach adulthood, we try to be as self-sufficient as possible, whether it's in our, in our work area or if it's in a performance at home. But through trial and error, we come to a conclusion that we can't do it by ourselves. And by error, I mean failure after failure after failure. The truth is, is mankind isn't as self-sufficient as we'd like to believe. We are extremely dependent on many things, despite our denials. And at the end of the day, we need God. This is not, this is not a point of view. This is not an opinion. This is a fact. Assuming that one believes in God, let's believe with three yet significant, uh, simple yet significant reasons why we need God in our lives. Starting off with the fact that, number one, he is our creator. All the way from the beginning, God has created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind, both man and female, Genesis 1, 27, and he created us to his perfection. He knows us better than we know ourselves. We are all products of a perfect design. He knows our strengths, he knows our weaknesses, and he knows where we fall. We need God because he is our creator and he is the only reliable tech support that helps us make sense of our lives. Another reason why we need God is because, number two, he's our redeemer. Unfortunately, we have all made mistakes in our lives. We've all made a mess. And if you guys will turn with me to Romans 3.23, this will all make sense. That's Romans 3.23. This is one of my dad's favorite points to make. It reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory. And all are justified freely by his grace. One of the things I want to make a point on is that it doesn't say some fall short or some are justified freely. It says all. That's an absolute. My mom always tells me not to speak in absolutes because the overemphasis is created when used. But in this text, this is exactly what we need. We need the overemphasis. Which leads to my next point of that we are all in need of major correction. Romans 3.9. But to answer this problem, God offers up himself as our redeemer. Romans 34, 22. And through God's grace, he makes it possible to start anew by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. And by offering his son on behalf of all of our sins, we are redeemed from our sins. We need God because as our redeemer, we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and to start anew from our lives. And my third point 
is that he is our provider. God will always provide for us, whether we are concerned about our next job or next meal. God will always provide, Acts 14, 17. But not only will he provide for our physical needs, he will also provide for our spiritual needs. This does not necessarily mean that we are going to get everything we want. God's not a genie. It means that, we, that when we draw close to him and trust in God, he will provide in many ways. Something that my parents have proclaimed to the family when we are going through a difficult time is that God has never left us wanting. And that's the absolute truth. God has never left us, left us wanting. That simple truth just brings us to comfort and helps us go along with that problem. So when we face problems in our life, we need to put on the belt of truth. We will put on the breastplate of righteousness. We will have feet fitted with readiness. We will arm ourselves with the shield of faith, along with the helmet of salvation, and finally, with the sword of spirit. By putting on the armor of God in full faith, we will be able to conquer any physical or spiritual problem that comes our way. So let's put our armor along with the guidance of God to conquer any and every battle that we have, from physical to spiritual. In conclusion, there are many other things that I could have said to illustrate our need for God. But for now, let these suffice. That number one, God is our creator. Number two, God is our redeemer. And number three, God is our provider. One last thing I want to say before I close out this devotional regards to the people who reject any need for God. The people who reject any need for God will, number one, go through life without no true knowledge. Number two, they'll have no way to truly atone or correct the mistakes that they've made. And number three, they'll leave lives devoid to the fulfillment of God's provincial care. So as Christians, we are called to follow God. So let's put on our armor of God and be ready for the battle that's already been won. My brother, Abraham, and I often mock each other and call each other names. One of the more common words we use to disparage each other is the term lazy. Perhaps one of us is making our bed, or maybe we're washing the dishes, and we really need help. As the loving brothers we are, we will usually deny that help, unless our parents have something to say about it. Within this context, lazy is just another empty word Abraham and I use to attack each other. However, true laziness like any other sin, does draw us further and further away from God, in that we are not doing anything or accomplishing anything, let alone leading a godly, Christ-like life. And although we may not consider laziness a sin that we struggle with, we still need to be cognizant of how laziness can affect our lives as Christians. With that said, tonight we'll consider some ways, or some, what the Bible teaches about laziness and how we can overcome laziness. First, we need to, before we distance ourselves from the, from the idea of laziness, we need to look at some potential signs and the effects of laziness. To do this, we can look to the book of Proverbs, which speaks time and time again about laziness. Speaking of Proverbs, let's turn to Proverbs. We'll be looking first at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In the book of Proverbs, laziness and sleep can be found hand in hand. And often the word sluggard can be found and although we don't use that word much, it simply means a lazy person. So, Proverbs, 9, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Similarly, 
Proverbs chapter 19, verse 15 states, Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. Then, in Proverbs 26, verse 14, we read, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. Now, the point of these verses is not to condemn condemn sleep, but rather to explain that an excessive amount of sleep, or being idle, will provide no benefit and will lead to a life in which it is a struggle to meet even the most basic necessities of life. Apart from spending too much time asleep, a lack of ambition for anything is also a sign of laziness, which we can see in Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. If we go about our days and lives simply going through the motions, then it will become very easy for us to become ensnared by laziness. One final indicator of laziness, as obvious as it may seem, is simply not doing the work we are meant to be doing. Proverbs 20, verse 4 illustrates this. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek harvest and have nothing. Taking all these writings from Proverbs into consideration, we can clearly see the detrimental physical effects of laziness. But laziness is not confined to just our physical lives. It can manifest itself in our walk as a Christian as well. Just as we can spend too much time asleep, our faith can lie dormant too. Just as we can lack ambition in our earthly pursuits, so too can we lack zeal for our God. And just as we can fail to do our work here on earth, we can also fail to do the work of God. Now, we'll spend the rest of the lesson considering some ways of correcting a lazy faith. One initial way of correcting a lazy faith is to spend more time in God's word. I have found that it is most difficult to work and thus have the motivation necessary to work when there's no clear end goal. For example, let's say I have a school project, and let's say that school project is due weeks or maybe even months ahead. I, at that moment in time, will not have the urgency I need to complete that school project, and I may procrastinate and not do it until the week before it's due. Likewise, if we lose sight of our goal as Christians, then we run the risk of letting our faith falter, and then we can very easily become lazy in our work as Christians, or perhaps not do our work as a Christian at all. We must constantly remind ourselves of our purpose on this earth. To secure our salvation and to spread that message of salvation to others around us so that they can be saved as well. Matthew 28, verse 20. Also, by spending more time reading God's word, we grow more knowledgeable and secure in our faith, which will then encourage us to live more godly and Christ-like lives. Let us make sure, as we read in Psalm 119, that God's word truly is a lamp unto our feet and delight into our path. Not only is spending more time in God's word a way of countering a lazy faith, so is focusing on service to others. If we think about it, laziness is inherently selfish. The excuses that typically accompany laziness, like, I can do it later, or I'm sure someone else will take care of it, display a desire to gratify ourselves, or to just not want to inconvenience ourselves, rather than seeing what we can do for others. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We'll look at verse 45. In the latter part of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the judgment day when he'll separate the faithful from the unfaithful or the sheep from the goats. In verse 45, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the, uh, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Those that Jesus condemns fail to recognize and act upon the opportunity to serve. 
What we as true doers of God's words must do is to seize every opportunity we have to serve. In so doing, not only are we just not lazy in our faith, we also secure our place in heaven. Lazy is not something anyone wants to be characterized as, but it is something that we need to be wary of, especially when it comes to our faith. A lazy faith really is the dead faith without works that Paul warns us about in James 2.17. To truly lead godly, Christ-like lives, we must not let any moment to act for the glory of God pass. Let us all strive to have not a lazy faith, but a proactive faith, eagerly seeking out opportunities to, to let God be shown through us. Tonight, if you have recognized the need to put on Christ in baptism and become a follower of God, or if you have let your faith dwindle and would like to rededicate your life to God, whatever your need, we ask that you come as together we stand and sing.